Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. This episode is part three of the three-part Spencer Levy interview, first episode. We will talk about his bio and his background a little bit, his evolution coming up from New York, going to Cornell and Harvard Law School, and then getting into real estate law for five years in New York, and then deciding to go into investment banking with Lake Mason in Baltimore, and was there until the financial crisis, and then decided to get into the brokerage industry with CBRE and investment management, and then the research area. So you'll hear about that in the first part episode. The next episode, we talk about CBRE's global footprint and their services, as well as the competitive nature of brokerage and how the he, they look at the brokerage industry. And the final one is about the DC area. And we do a flyover of each product type, including office, retail, industrial, apartments, student housing, and data centers to learn about each of the segments. So I hope you enjoy each of the following three episodes. This segment, we discuss the Washington, D.C. area perspective from Spencer's viewpoint at CBRE. They have three offices in the Washington area, as well as an office in Baltimore. And so he talks about the high-level trends at each of, for each of the product types, which I overview with him. Office, retail, industrial, apartment, senior housing, student housing, data centers, infrastructure, healthcare, universities, and as he calls them, headline risk equals opportunity, which he'll talk about at the end of the discussion. So I hope you find this entertaining and informative. Without further ado, here's the segment three. Welcome, Spencer. Uh, we're talking about the Washington, D.C. real estate market now in uh, seg- segment three of the podcast. So uh, CBRE has three offices in the metro D.C. area, Bethesda, D.C., and Tyson's Corner. Is there a reason just for three offices, or do you feel that that's enough uh, dynamism for the marketplace as far as the brokerage community? Well, look, um, I'm sitting here talking to you in Baltimore. I would say this is part of the greater D.C. area as well. But I think the number of offices is secondary to the client relationships that we're trying to service. So we have a tremendous federal government practice, which is in the D.C. region. And there are also many large corporates based in and around the D.C. region, and we service them. But what's happening increasingly, particularly on the investor side, is our investors are global in nature. And some of them will invest in the D.C. metro market, which will service either from there or from outside the region. So I think the number of offices is secondary to the quality of the relationships, the types of clients that we're servicing. Uh, which increasingly are national and global in scale. And I think we're doing a fine job in terms of the number of offices in D.C. Of course, brokerage is a local business Mm -hmm. and very much street level in that one block can be different than the next as far as valuation, structure, and and deals. 
So my sense is you want to be as close to your to, to the real estate that's that's there the activities are and those those three markets are three of the hottest obviously in the DC market. So now let's step back and do kind of what I call a flyover of uh, the different product types in the DC market to get your perspective mm-hmm. since you're the research guru. So I'm going to start with the office market, which is, you know, DC is either the second or third largest office market in mm-hmm. the country as far as total volume, total square footage. So talk about recent trends in the office market. Not You can bring in other markets, but talking about you know, as, as best as you can about DC and what you're, what you're seeing there. Sure. So I'll give you the big picture trend. And the big picture trend is called what I call the new city, quote unquote, the new city. And the new city doesn't necessarily mean moving from DC to Nashville. It could be moving from K Street to the wharf or to the yards or to National Landing, which are areas that are outside of the CBD, but all of them have the same basic attributes, which is live work, play, and which is increasingly important to occupiers and to their employees. They also, all three of those areas have unbelievable infrastructure. And the infrastructure at National Landing is maybe the best I've seen in the world because they have the subway, which takes you straight from Arlington to downtown DC. I understand they're bringing the Amtrak train down Mm -hmm. from DC to stop at this stop. And then the piece de resistance is going to be the uh, bridge that they're building across Crystal City to, so you can walk to the airport. Right. It'd be the only city in America that you can do that. And by the way, you know, people can knock the federal government sometimes for a lot of things, but they can thank the federal government for the fact that Reagan National Airport is still there because most other cities have moved their airports outside the city and they kept it there because the Congress people wanted the convenience. They got it. So, you know, kudos for that and a lot of other reasons for the federal government. But I would say that that is the fragmentation trend we're seeing, not just in D.C., but elsewhere, where people are moving to these new city locations because they realize that their real estate is no longer just four walls and a ceiling to keep out the rain. It is the key attraction and retention mechanism for their employees, which will not just increase their happiness, will increase their productivity. They'll be better employees uh, for your company. So that is the key trend. But within that trend, are there some uh, trends that, t- that D.C. needs to look at? And so when I look at D.C. versus other markets, I try to take a look at the concentration of what I call old school tenants versus new school tenants. And what's an old school tenant? An old school tenant is accounting, law, government, and finance. What's a new school tenant? Tech, information, media. And D.C. has a heavy concentration of these old school tenants. And what's happening with D.C. right now is they are now beginning or they're much earlier in their densification stage than some of these new school tenants. They're also more willing to get up and move than some of these new school tenants who have already moved. So part of the reason why you're seeing a little bit of softness in CBD office rents in D.C. is because of this combination of densification and uh, the movement to these, uh, these new city locations. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We are now seeing more diverse tenants moving into the market, particularly from the tech area, uh, not just not-for-profits, but core operations uh, moving into the area. And that's because DC ranked as our third best tech market in the United States. But they were third best, but you know where they were number one? They were the number one brain drain market, meaning people were graduating from Georgetown and other great universities and leaving. 
That creates tremendous opportunity and momentum for DC to keep these young professionals in the market better than others. So Boston's another market that we that also has a tremendous, quote, brain drain attribute to it. And what did they do? They built 12 million square feet in the seaport. Uh, that's why DC can support new building uh, in places like the wharf, the yards, and in National Landing. So you alluded to the tech growth in, mm-hmm. in, in DC. And of course, the biggest news last year, year before, was uh, Amazon's mm-hmm. HQ2, which you talked about National Landing mm-hmm. and stuff. So the impact of that has been significant in Northern Virginia, mm-hmm. particularly because where that's where they're going. And it's affected not just office space, but residential and other uses as well. But I want to talk also about a couple other trends that we're seeing is the, this short-term rental trend that we're seeing right now. And it's been, you know, the WeWorks, the industrious, that kind of situation. What's your opinion of that, of that trend? Do you think that's a growing part of the business? Absolutely. Putting aside that in the spot market, where we sit today, uh, there's clearly been uh, negative ramifications of the failure of the WeWork IPO. And the negative ramifications are both on the occupier side, where there's less leasing to them, but also on the capital market side, where people are more concerned about buildings that are disproportionately that credit. So that's the bad news. That's the headline. Here's the good news. I think it's a short-term phenomenon because I think co-working uh, is here to stay uh, because in the changes on the way that people work and the way that people want to work. And so right now, co-working is about 2% of the overall amount of space in the entire industry. And we came out with a report, CBRE came out with a report uh, about two weeks prior to the uh, failure of the WeWork IPO, which tried to estimate how much co-working space we expect in the industry over the next 10 years. And it was a pretty wide band. It was anywhere between 6.5% of the industry and 22%. Okay, pretty wide band. But even at 6.5%, at the low end of our scale, that's tripling the size of the business. Now, I've, I even prior to the failure of the WeWork IPO, I was at the low end, not at 65 somewhere between maybe 65 and 10%, but not the high end. And the reason is, I think to some degree, we have overestimated so-called, quote, millennial demand for the space. And, and, and why is that? And it's because we've been measuring what millennials wanted five years ago, not what they want today. And we came out with a study two years ago called Millennial Myths, Live, Work, Play. And you know what the grand conclusion of that study was? It said that millennials are just young human beings. And because of that conclusion, now that they're somewhat older human beings getting married, having kids, delayed lifestyle choices, they're going to want some more traditional real estate, commercial real estate choices like everybody else. And that includes not just flexible working within the workspace, but flex working from home. But also what they are going to want is good old fashioned, old school infrastructure. So the example I'll give you is Manhattan. And Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan was soft for a couple of years until recently and it's now really started to pick up and improve. Why? Millennials got older, they moved out to Westchester County, and they like coming to Grand Central Station, which is smack in the middle of Midtown. And so a lot of these assumptions that I've even made here regarding D.C. about moving to these new city locations is now being called into question by these demographic changes where old school might be the new school, particularly if it has good infrastructure, which is the great news about D.C., because D.C. has tremendous infrastructure, notwithstanding the challenges of driving around 495. The train system in D.C., intra-D.C., is 
is good and getting better with the silver line and other extensions. It could still get even better. I would love to see even better train servers between Baltimore and D.C. It's still very, very, in my opinion, 19th century. But we could get a better train service in different spurs, which would really spark the entire region. So a couple other trends in the office sector. One is contraction of the law firms. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure every leasing broker in the country knows that situation. So how is that being dealt with now? And you know, what are you telling your landlords when they have a big law firm that's come and due? How do you manage that process of making keeping, retaining them, or attracting a firm, or looking at a to-be-built situation where, you know, do you want to build, you know, for a law firm, and what are law firms looking today in, in, as far as you well, well, first of all, we have a um, report that came out last year on law firm uh, trends, and, and many of what you've just mentioned are accurate in terms of having a smaller footprint, and also what I mentioned is accurate, which is moving to new locations within cities, so they're not as K Street focused as they once were. But going to the law firm footprint thing, a lot of this has to do with the fact that they may not need a law library anymore. Right. They may not need copy machines anymore. Right. So this isn't just your, the partner's losing his, corner, his or her corner office. This may be losing some of the infrastructure, but that goes right back to that densification thing. But I think what's also happening, which you didn't mention, but this is the way, one of the ways that we're competing, is that law firms are now competing with tech firms in ways that they never have before. But they're competing the same way finance is competing. They're competing for the highest quality employees. And how do you compete for the highest quality employees? Give them the best live, work, play experience you can. So we're using the workspace as an attraction and retention tool for the law firms. is probably the biggest thing we can do, even though some of the trends you mentioned are accurate, uh, particularly around densification. And then the, the final uh, part of the office space, which is the largest component in Washington, is GSA. So talk about, you know, CBRA's interface with GSA. What are you advising CB- GSA today? How are they managing not only their own, but their lease space today going mm-hmm. forward? It's a, it's a challenge. Well, look, without being specific about exactly what we do with the, uh, the GSA, the GSA is no different than any other client in the densification trends we're seeing. We certainly have seen the average square footage requirements uh, for the government reducing, just like we've seen it for law firms. Right. But, you know, they're just as cost conscious as anybody else. So I would just leave it at, you know, the same trends we're seeing for law firms, not materially dissimilar to what you see for the GSA. All right. So let's move to the retail market, which is a pretty interesting one today. Little pure retail is being developed, except in mixed use today, uh, except maybe freestanding things occasionally. Users have evolved to more, quote, experience-based users. So trends of like food and entertainment, Mm -hmm. that evolution. Mm -hmm. And that's changed the use of space and the interaction with other uses of space. So what other trends are you seeing today in retail and how what impact it has on the D.C. market? Well, I guess retail, first of all, gets a bloody nose for the wrong reason, right? They get a bloody nose because of the internet and the encroachment of the internet, but I have a very different take on retail. From my perspective, the number one disruptor of retail isn't e-commerce, it's demographics. And the, it's the shift of people out of certain locations into higher density, more urban locations. But at the same time, you are still seeing softness in storefront urban retail, which I consider to be one of my best investment ideas. And the reason why is because people agreed with my investment thesis and may have overpaid for some of this space. And now they have 
a capital markets problem, not necessarily a tenant demand problem. Now, you have this additional evolution that's going on now, shifting from goods to experience. So clearly there's evolution going on in addition to the capital markets issue. Uh, But I'm still very bullish on retail, not only as an independent asset class, but as merging with industrial, because as last mile industrial becomes more important, what's retail, what's industrial? Best example I'll give you that is Best Buy, right? We had this conversation five years ago and say, oh, how's Best Buy going to do? You say, oh, they're going to go like Radio Shack. Well, exactly the opposite. They've done tremendously well. Why? Because when I go into a Best Buy now, it's as much of a showroom as it is a service location, as it is a warehouse to get stuff. Right. They, they, they have you know, one example of a retailer who's gotten the formula right. But at the same time, if you are an owner of a building that you need to go to the bank uh, for refinancing or you want to go sell it, you have this dynamic between what I call credit and cool. Right. Sounds fluffy, but credit is a national known retailer that you could take to the bank with a rated or better corporate credit. Cool is some local guy who may activate the space, but you can't take it to the bank. They they have non-traditional credit metrics. What we're seeing now is more of a mix of the two, combination of the nationals and this cool factor, because retail isn't just there to buy stuff. It is to activate the broader project. And so this mixed use element is critically important as it relates to your choice of retailers to activate the broader space for office and for uh, multifamily. Well, what you just talked about was what the regional mall was at one point. And mm-hmm. so some regional malls have retained what you just said, the synergy of local, cool local tenants and yeah. big national credits. Yeah. Unfortunately, the department store hasn't evolved mm-hmm. and it's become a dinosaur. How are you seeing the retrofit of the department store space today? Well, the department store, first of all, I'm going to give you, I'll give you a shout out to department stores for a second, right? Notwithstanding all of the well-known news on JCPenney and others and Sears, the best department store in the world, in my opinion, people always ask me this, is Harrods in London. And why is that? There's one of them. It's a destination. The service level there is impeccable. They're selling the same stuff as the store down the street, but it's still doable. So I don't think a department store is dead per se. And, you know, you could, you could argue that Walmart and Target are department stores and they're doing just fine because they've determined how to work online, work in physical uh, and at the lower end of the market. Harrods has determined how to work at the high end of the market. What you still have, however, is the soft middle and the soft middle hasn't figured it out yet on how to uh, operate bricks and mortar and, omni- and uh, Internet at the same time. And so what you're seeing now is a, a lot of two things happening. At one end of the spectrum, you're creating a virtual live, work, play environment. So what is a virtual live, work, play environment? So what's happening in Columbia, Maryland, by the Columbia Mall. Columbia Mall, if you came, went there 10 years ago, was nothing but the Columbia Mall. Now you go to the Columbia Mall and you see office buildings next to it. You see multifamily being built up right next Tyson's to it. Tyson's Corner Center. Same thing. Tyson's Corner Center, right up here in Baltimore in Hunt Valley. Right. Same exact phenomenon. So virtual live, work, play being created. Uh, which I think is uh, my office for CBRE in San Diego is now been moved out of a suburban office building to be the second floor of a Westfield mall office space on top of the mall. We're doing it ourselves. Right. But at the same time, for those things that are most challenged, you're seeing change of use. You're seeing some malls uh, changing their use to, uh, to something completely different. And it sounds easy for me to argue that, 
uh, because it's very expensive to change use. And so what you're seeing among many of the shopping center and mall operators, particularly the shopping center operators, is they're teaming up with large national builders to buy the out pads so that they can take the cost and the risk of doing this virtual live work play versus them doing it themselves. Every one of the big national REITs and shopping centers is doing this, is, is at least considering this. And there's consolidation, of course, too, True. in the industry. Okay, let's shift now to the industrial market. Now, Washington, D.C. is not known as an industrial market except back office for primarily office users, per se. Maybe distribution now because, you know, getting close to the customer is really the important thing today for distribution. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say where we're sitting here in Baltimore would probably be more of a what you would call more of a better uh, industrial market. But Washington does have a few things like lab space, R&D, a few things, and, and some light assembly, but, you know, it's not really that big. So talk about this region, I guess, from an industrial standpoint, and what are the drivers to it and what, why uh, it's important to the D.C. market to have a good industrial base. And one thing you didn't mention, John, is there's a big cold storage area halfway between Baltimore and D.C., that brings a lot of the groceries and particularly servicing restaurants. So the market for industrial in this region is deep and it's diverse, but I think you really need to split it. We can split it into 10 parts, I'll split it into two. One is big box warehouse distribution, having to do with goods being shipped long distances, and that could be either through the port of Baltimore or being shipped onto Route 80 or 95, which converge here in Baltimore, which is why Baltimore may be a superior market for big box warehouse distribution. But where it is not a, a superior market is where we see the ball going. Where we see the ball going is in last mile distribution. And because of the high density population and the wealth of the D.C. market, we're going to see a proliferation of this last mile getting the goods to market uh, even faster in these smaller facilities. And these smaller facilities are both going to be for last mile distribution, but they also often serve in a flex capacity. And I will say that flex used to be a dirty word, like suburban office used to be a dirty word in our business because it never performed as well. Well, guess what? Flex is now not only serving this last mile distribution, but many of the smaller contractors and others that are helping build the DC market. So I think the DC market is better than you've characterized it, though it is not as dynamic as Baltimore in the big box warehouse distribution side. Will there be construction in, the, in, the, in this last mile product. So for instance, would people be able to buy dirt and build to this last mile thing? And can the numbers make sense? Well, that's, that's the, uh, the billion dollar question, right? And so yes, it will. And so what you're going to see in markets like high density markets like DC is multi-story industrial. And we are now seeing multi-story industrial in Brooklyn, Seattle, and there's a big facility being built right here in Wilmington, Delaware multi-story industrial. Now, the reason why people don't build multi-story industrial is because the model wasn't proven yet. Can you get the same rents on the second, third, fourth floor as you can on the first floor? Well, not only are you getting the same rents, you're getting rents in these high density locations that are approaching office rents. That's the kind of rents you're getting in some of these high density, tremendous location industrial. So yes, you're gonna see multi-story industrial in DC, much like we've seen elsewhere. And that, to me, is the future of the D.C. industrial market, not necessarily big box warehouse distribution. So in essence, if, if you fail at a multifamily job, you can convert into industrial building is what you're saying. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that, John. I used Because multifamily has been so hot for so long. I used to say, well, you see that bad office building? Throw a few beds in there and take it. Uh, you know, now you got a multifamily building, right? But no, I think that um, 
industrial has been, and it's only going to get stronger in the intermediate term as e-commerce uh, washes through. So let's talk about the apartment market a little bit. And that obviously has been the leader in investments yeah. for the last 15 years or yeah. so. Led, it's basically led the, at one point it was over 50% of all investments were apartment, were multifamily projects. So talk about that business today and how it's evolved and how it, you know, in the DC market, it's, we have a huge demand at the low end of the market, obviously, and don't have the supply for it. And it's very difficult. The land costs are such that you can't justify ground up development without subsidy or what I'm seeing now is philanthropic, philanthropic and corporate help for their employees. So talk about if you can, if there are any trends like that you're seeing being a big global you know, marketer, how are people supporting from the affordable standpoint? And then, of course, at the high end, there's just a lot of trades and how, what, what's going on in that? There's, is there overbuilding? Is there too much volatility and shifting going on in the marketplace? A lot of things to say. <laughs> sure. So, well, you should know we're sitting here in a conference room in Baltimore and on the screen in front of us is my report, which I'm publishing this week called The Age of Responsive Real Estate. And what is my 10th trend in my report? Multifamily is the asset class of the future, right? It's the asset class of the present, but we think it's going to be even stronger over the next 10 years. And why is that from a macro basis that I'll get micro? It's because every trend supports multifamily from the gig economy for people wanting more flexibility to people having kids later. And unfortunately, because people are saddled with so much student debt, buying another house and getting more debt isn't as attractive as it once was before you even talk about how the equity uh, earnings power of your house uh, has proven to be uh, fictional for the last 20 years for most people. Now, the going to the affordable side of it and the, and the market rent side of it, uh, the affordable housing crisis is uh, a catastrophe of human making. And it's a human made catastrophe because it could be solved very easily in one day if we had the political will to solve it. And you know who has done that and who has the political will? I'll give you one example. And the shout out is to Minneapolis. Minneapolis changed its zoning laws to allow people to go vertical in single family locations. You want to solve the affordable housing crisis? One day, one stroke of the pen, done. But people don't want to do that because the number one problem is people nimbyism, not wanting people in their backyard. And who ran into that problem? California. So California tried to change its zoning laws in a similar way to how Minneapolis did, but along transit lines so people could live with a multifamily near a train line and go into San Francisco or Los Angeles, but they shot it down because of nimbyism. So it's a self-created problem solvable with one stroke of the pen. The problem isn't that we don't have enough money to build this stuff. There's plenty of money. There isn't land. Next time somebody says, I'm going to cut you a check for X, I say, I don't want your money. I want your land. And once you get the land, you can do it. So I can go to all kinds of solutions of, of how that uh, that could work, but ultimately it is zoning restrictions that are the problem and it's self-inflicted. But in terms of the for market housing, there was for a time some overbuilding in the DC market, in the uh, for, uh, market rate uh, housing side of it. Uh, we're now working through some of that inventory, so not as bad as it once was, mm -hmm. but um, you know, we are seeing terrific new projects like the Yards, which has, I think, 5,000 units and 11,000 residents. There's places live, work, play like that that are going to see more of that, the wharf, and we'll probably see some more in Crystal City as well. So I still think you're going to see plenty of new multifamily development, and it will get absorbed because of this new live, work, play thing. But let me give you one other comment on affordable housing. And I said this on a podcast last week. 
look, a lot of people are trying to put in rent control as a means of affordable housing. And I say this as a guy who cares deeply about affordable housing and gave you the solution that actually could work. Rent control is self-defeating because mm-hmm. all it will do is stop capital flow, it will stop new supply, and it will send it to other markets. It's been proven for over 100 years when in 1910, the percentage of London's housing market that was r- rental was about 75%. Now it's about 15%. What changed? Rent control. Rent control kills supply. It does not help the underlying problem. Well, D.C. has a unique law which requires if you're going to sell a property, Mm -hmm. you have to offer it to the tenants. Mm -hmm. It's called TOPA. So it it affects the market significantly. You can ask any of your brokers in in D.C. Mm -hmm. If that law went away, it seems to me that would help across the board, not only in transactional side, but also in the affordability side. Do you agree with that? Look, I... Even though I appear like a free market capitalist, which I am, uh, I, I'm not going to say that the relationship between TOPA and affordable housing is one for one. I think TOPA may be one of the issues that has a marginal impact on retarding capital flow. It does because it takes longer to close a deal. You have to give a certain level of right. notice. Some people don't want to do that. So, yes, it does do that. But what you're, all, what you're really dealing with is the macro issue of tenants' rights versus landlords' rights. Right. And so, to me... If people want to trade TOPA for more rent or less rent control, you know, that's a pretty um, good trade that you might want to consider. But again, we're dealing with a very unfortunate and, and, and many times toxic political environment right now yes. where, where people make irrational decisions at times that don't help their underlying problems. And so until you solve that, this really challenging political environment that we have today, I'm just not optimistic on solving the affordable housing crisis because the solutions that are being offered are worse than the problem itself. Well, and of course, the other thing is gentrification, which is another piece of it where, you know, they look, everyone looking for a deal, finding cheaper land. So they look to markets that are eh, a little bit sketchy, buy, retrofit or improve significantly. And all of a sudden, the people that were there can't afford it anymore. So what mm-hmm. do they do? They move to other markets to, and, it, and the, the cycle continues. Is there any way to get out of that cycle? Is the yes, there, there is a way to get out of that cycle. It's called fix the zoning restrictions, as I just said before. It solves everything. You know, if I was asked once if I was king for a day and I could do one thing, what would I do? I'd solve the public school problem because the public school problem is the root of all evil, all of it, because people... Public schools are underserving our people, and the school, schools that are serving our, uh, our people are uh, being restricted in terms of having other people come into that district. And, that, and really, the, the affordable housing crisis is really the public school crisis more than anything else about not allowing people moving into these areas to, go, to do a uh, multifamily job. I get that. Understood. So let's uh, move away from uh, from apartments for a second. Uh, well, actually, let me let me get one more issue, and it, it kind of relates to what we talked about in the office sector. Mm-hmm. Is we're now seeing what I would call the hotelization of apartment properties today, mm-hmm. and such that people want, they, let's say, a, a Accenture brings in a gang of young people into a market for a certain pro- project for six months. They don't want to commit to a one-year lease, so they want a short-term obligation on that. 
So there are companies that have developed now, there are several of them, Sonder, et cetera, et cetera, that have come about that are addressing that demand in a, in a hotel-type format. What's your sense of that, and uh, uh, how, how dramatic will that affect the apartment market? How will that help it? Well, not to advertise myself one more time, but the very report that's sitting on the screen in front of us has a section on there called Hotelization of Multifamily, which <laughs> talks exactly about this trend and how big is it going to be. It's a trend that's bigger than just a brand. It's bigger than just a brand saying you can have hotel-style uh, amenities for a shorter-term rental because hotelization also deals with really what is the fundamental issue, which is greater operational risk in real estate than we ever have had before as leases are getting more short-term in nature, number one, and number two, the hyper-amenitization of space that was traditionally handled outside of the space, certainly by some, somebody else. And the third element of it is the capital markets element of it. What does all of this operational risk and increased amenities mean to the value of your real estate? Because we both know that the value of a hotel is still worth a lot less than the value of a similar multifamily building right next door. Why? Higher operational risk. So as you creep this operational risk into multifamily, while you may increase your NOI, do you decrease your multiple, do you, meaning does your cap rate expand as a result? In my opinion, on certain circumstances, yes, but most, no, because we've seen the capital markets continue to evolve to accept shorter-term leases in office. That's Best example of that I will give you is London, where the average length of a London lease was 15 years. Now it's seven, and cap rates are at historic lows. The second I will give you is retail. In Singapore, the average length of a retail lease in Singapore is two years long. They have the lowest retail cap rates in the world. So I don't fear hotelization. I see more of it coming. And I don't fear the capital markets implications. So owners of real estate are managing risk in a way that has made their capital partners comfortable, in essence, is what you're saying, with the uses and management and being able to be due, due diligent on how they operate their rollover. Because it's a very expensive process, particularly in the office sector. The cost of rollover is so high. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's absurdly high. Yeah, well, I think that that's... Entirely correct, but I think what's, what's really happened, and I can show you a chart, if you want me to, I can pull up right there, which talks about how the operational real estate cap rates and the regular, the, the big four real estate classes, have equalized. And the answer is why? Has the operational risk gone away? No. What's happened is, is that private equity platforms have gotten so involved in things like manufactured housing, things like senior housing, things like data centers, that they have these terrific operating platforms that's able to strip some of the operational risk out of the business that wasn't there before because they're great operators. And this is call it what it is. People are scrambling for yield. And when people scramble for yield, they're going to do the same thing every time. They're going to go to take more risk, take more risk by asset class, by asset quality, or by market. Yeah. So getting into alternatives is to segue into what you just said. Senior housing. Obviously, with a demographic change right now, mm -hmm. boomers coming at it big time. What are you seeing there? Now, I had a meeting just last week with a senior housing operator that said that we've, got, we've had a hard time leasing some of these units. They're, they can't get above about 80, 85 percent. And the question they've asked themselves, are we not there yet with regard to this incoming wave of, of the boomers? Now, they're starting, but is it there yet? And what's your sense from, from that perspective? Well, I always, when people ask me about senior housing, 
I like to tell the story of my grandma Bess. My grandma Bess, when she was 95 years old, I moved her out of her apartment in Rego Park, Queens, and moved her to a assisted living facility in Stamford, Connecticut. And why did I move her? I moved her because she lost mobility. She couldn't get around town anymore. But what if I was making that same decision? I might have delayed that decision because of Uber and Lyft and maybe one day self-driving cars. So all of the demographic trends point in one direction. They all point towards need more senior housing. But all the technological trends, both in terms of the ability to get around town, before we even mention the ability to get goods to your, delivered to your home, point in the other. So the challenge that people have when they look at these trends in isolation is they're not in isolation. It's all a seamless web and they work together. So demographics point one way, technology points in another. And the argument for aging in place is just getting stronger, A, because of technology, but B, there's another aspect, which is probably of equal importance. If people aren't going to make money selling their houses, they're less likely to sell. And one of the things I talked about before was the rise of multifamily. Why is it rising? Because people haven't been making equity on their homes. I live here in Baltimore. My house is underwater. Not from a, I mean, my mortgage is not as high as the value of the house, but it's lost value in the 15 years I've been there and I built the place, right? What, and I'm just one of a 10 million examples like that of if I couldn't afford it, I wouldn't leave my own house. So I think you have to look at the single family market. You need to look at technology and demographics together. But going right back to the whole alternative sector specifically, goes right back to what I was saying before about the rise in operational real estate impacting everybody, bringing down cap rates across the board. The other thing I mentioned about senior housing that people don't talk a lot about is the cost of employing the people that are going to actually do the operational cost. Getting labor today is incredibly expensive, incredibly difficult. And so because of that, whatever formula you had for running the place, um, you may have to increase your OPEX. Student housing. What's your sense on that market? Because of, uh, I'm, I'm going to put a theory out and I'm gonna, I want you to see whether it's, it's accurate mm-hmm. or not. There are many colleges in this country that shouldn't be in operations, primarily because it just doesn't make sense for parents to pay in or whether the federal government will say, you know, we're just not going to fund the student, the student loan. It may be the large, one of the largest debt crises we have, and it hasn't really hit the fan yet, but it's coming, I think. If it, hasn't, it, it is to some a lot of young people. So the question is, What's the impact of that on the student housing market? Would you build student housing tied to a, uh, a university that isn't strong? I think it's a risky proposition. You got to look for, if you're a student housing, you want to be in markets that are strong universities that have uh, a real reason to be. Is that what well, you well, look, of that? We could spend the entire hour and a half just talking about education here, John, but I'll simplify it like this. We, we did a study on student housing and the value of student housing based upon different strengths of universities. And believe it or not, one of the best indicators of the most valuable student housing was whether or not they had a big time football team at their school, which sounds trite, but mathematically true, because those schools are showing the greatest demand uh, for students because students care about live, work, play, just like anybody else. Now, I went to Cornell University. I don't think we had big-time sports in anything, uh, but nevertheless, Ivy uh, League. I loved it, but I, you know, that was my choice. But I would say to you that the student housing situation, not only dealing with the strength of the underlying university, 
But really, uh, the student housing business is a truly operational business because if you don't get your students in there on or before September the 1st, you may not get them all year. It's not like a regular multifamily no. building that has a rolling thing. So it's cyclical. It's yeah. very, and well, cyclical is annually cyclical, right. very, much more, a, a higher operating cost than people think. Uh, but strength of university is clearly the key factor. Data centers is another sector, which is interesting in Washington. It's a major sector. Mm-hmm. It's, I think we have the best data center market in the, in the United States yeah. because the internet is there. At least the, the spy on the internet is next to Dulles Airport. So is there, is there a specialty at CBRE in that, in that sector? As a matter of fact, I was fortunate to just do our data center event in uh, Aspen, Colorado two weeks ago uh, with all of our major uh, data center uh, investors, many of whom are clustered in Northern Virginia uh, for that reason. Uh, we're very bullish on data centers. At the same time, we're seeing the price per kilowatt hour come down substantially as there's more of them. Uh, as these become more efficient, um, there are risks associated with the cloud as to the location of these uh, facilities. But nevertheless, uh, we see a lot more data centers, a lot greater need for data centers in the future. So it's one of our best macro ideas. Interesting. So building one today would be a good thing to do. This is a good market to build. Uh, well, 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 it is, but you need to be a good operator. It's not, it, it's not industrial, right? You have to know the business. It's not dissimilar to some other high operational cost risk uh, types of facilities. So, so yes. ramping up in that business, is, it takes time to understand. It, that's correct. That's correct. Interesting. Okay. So D.C. is a government town, and it has been forever. But we now, obviously, with Amazon's approach, We've had Nestle come in. We've had a few corporate inflows in recent years, and GSA is contracting in general. Okay. So what do you see as far as that trend? Is that going to continue? We talked earlier about the, you know, the change in the sectors from the old to the new. Do you think more of that is coming to D.C., the new, and you know, from a long-term perspective? Can I give you a one-word answer? One word. Talent. Period. DC's talent base has a glut of talent that they are not tapping today. So the pendulum is going to continue to swing away from traditional tenants to more of the tech information media tenants uh, because it's an untapped gem for that reason. So that is the longer term trend, uh, notwithstanding some of the contraction of the older school industries. That's a great answer. So companies like Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, all wouldn't. Look at DC. Yeah, that's a viable place for us to be. Of course, with Amazon's growth, that's natural. It's not just the talent base. Notwithstanding everybody that's listening to this podcast on 495 right now complaining, you have great infrastructure in DC. Uh, and it is the airports, it is the trains. And I think that when you look at infrastructure, I look at two categories one is intra city infrastructure, and the other is inter city infrastructure. Or the combination of um, uh, Reagan and Dulles uh, is perhaps your greatest competitive advantage of having two terrific airports right there that can get you anywhere on the planet and easily any place in the United States. Yeah, so it's it's a wonderful competitive advantage and and double down on that. Healthcare uh, is a big sector, primarily on the Maryland side of the river Mm -hmm. with NIH, FDA, you know, laboratory space, et cetera. 
do you see that as a growing sector, and will that be a major driver for, for the marketplace going forward? Well, the, uh, one of the, uh, the prior meeting I had, actually, when you walked in here in the door, John, was with a, a person who works for the city of Baltimore, and we talked about that very question. And I was talking about biotech, about that's an area that we're ripe for additional development, uh, right around Hopkins, right around Maryland. And the reason for that is there's a shortage of that. And, you know, tragically, the coronavirus kind of brings that to uh, the fore, but uh, there's a shortage of it and we have great talent here. So that's one area that I, I see uh, is biotech, but other forms of healthcare, absolutely. And the healthcare market is fragmented. It used to be you had to be on a hospital campus to, uh, to get certain types of services. Now you've seen Johns Hopkins spread out and that's not an outlier. MedStar, same thing, spreading out into the community where you see uh, the people living. So um, actually, uh, while tech is the number one lease lessor of new space in the United States over the last several years, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, healthcare is going to take over uh, very shortly, both the number of jobs, and I believe it's going to translate into leasing. And the leasing is not just in this fragmented style. It's going to be in the district, too, because it's in New York City. It's one of the top new leasers of traditional office space as well. So uh, I couldn't be more bullish on healthcare, on the need for it, because of that demographic trend we talked about before about senior housing. But I think it's going to be even more powerful in uh, medical office and quasi-hospital environments than it will be in senior housing. So you talked about uh, Virginia Tech coming into uh, the Amazon campus. Mm -hmm. We have some solid universities in, in the Washington, D.C. area, Georgetown, GW, AU, University of Maryland, George Mason, Howard, all very solid institutions. How will they affect the, the real estate market going forward in your view? Uh, well, I just taught at Georgetown last week, so they're not as good as they once were. No, I'm just kidding. That was, that was a joke about <laughs> le letting me teach there. But the, uh, the universities are perhaps the biggest driver that I point to in any market I go to. And because of the multiplier effect, I'll give you one far flung story. Then I'll come right back to DC. When I was a kid, Arizona State University was a party school. I used to go there to mm -hmm. watch football and drink beer. And then Arizona State added an honors program, keeping all of the smart Arizona kids in state. And what is the number one sub-market in Arizona? Tempe, Arizona. I can tell you that the number one sub-market in Michigan, Ann Arbor. And I can go right down the line in Philadelphia, pointing near the sub-market near Drexel University, right down the line. There is no better multiplier of real estate strength than a university. And that is because the single scarcest thing in the world are large pockets of talent. And that is why if you go to these corridors and you build new businesses, innovation centers, other forms of real estate, they will tend to thrive there better than any other place. And so I certainly look to those uh, economic drivers as being perhaps Washington, D.C.'s greatest strength. It's interesting. The, uh, the, the criticism we've heard is that the universities don't work together in creating value together. It's kind of as a coalesce. They kind of are their own silos and they do what they want to do. So, for instance, University of Maryland, College Park. College Park has been desolate up until just recently as far as real estate. You know, you go down Route 1, it's, it was pretty tough. It's really improved of late. And I think that maybe it's just a, an awakening by the administration there. But people now believe, and George Mason sees it too, is this, you know, this uh, sun, you know, uh, effect, you know, being the, the magnet for growth in the marketplace. Well, Maryland just, just formed an innovation center, and I believe they did it on campus. 
uh, rather than off campus. Um, and, and I can give you a mixed opinion on that. I'd rather have seen it off campus. But nevertheless, uh, you're right. The universities are going to be the driver, but you also have to have the infrastructure uh, to get to and from College Park. It's not that easy to get there. Well, the Purple Line is under construction yeah. now, and that's going to move from New Carrollton all the way to Bethesda. Okay. Go right through College Park. So that should help. I oh, that'll, that'll help tremendously. So I, I, it goes right back to my argument. Infrastructure, absolutely critical, even if you've got this wonderful place. So um, I, I, I'm agreeing with you, John. Okay. So uh, let me just conclude the, the segment on Washington, D.C. with any other trends that I may have left out in bringing up about Washington that you've seen or have seen, or maybe bringing an international trend you think Washington should consider going forward to give some ideas for our young listeners. Sure. So I wrote a blog about three weeks ago, which, I, which was entitled Headline Risk Equals Opportunity. And what does it mean? It means that there are so many big issues out there geopolitically, U.S. politically, obviously the tragedy of the coronavirus, which is going on right now. The advice I give to young listeners is don't pay attention to that stuff. Pay attention to the local issues because local issues matter the most for the long-term success of your career and long-term analysis of a market. So I use what I call my five factors of awesome markets. And they, we, all of them came up in today's conversation. And they include talent, live, work, play, infrastructure, ease of doing business, and foreign money. You follow those five factors of awesome, you'll find not just great markets, but great sub-markets. And the good news is that Washington, D.C. and its surrounding areas score extremely well on each of these factors. Great. Spencer, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. John, thank you. This has been very, very informative. Thank Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too.